Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Would you guys please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open our Bibles. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray that you would do that. Give us open hearts, Lord, to receive your word. Lord, would you water the seeds of your word that have been planted in our hearts over the years as we continue to study. Hide your word in our hearts, Lord, that it might bear fruit in times to come, but also use it to shape us, guide us in our thinking, in in our affections. Lord, we pray that our affections would be directed towards you as we study your word today. So Lord, give us malleable, teachable hearts, and Lord, we come to this, come to your word today desiring to hear from you and be guided by you. At the same time, Lord, our hearts are heavy as we consider what is happening uh, to our friends, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. So, Lord, we do ask for an end to this conflict. We ask for peace in Ukraine. Uh, We ask for righteousness and justice to prevail. And, Lord, we do ask that uh, you would use our Christian brothers and sisters in that part of the world right now to bring comfort and to bring hope and to really shine your light in that dark place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was 18 years old, I traveled to a different country for the first time in my life. I went to the Dominican Republic, and I was there for two weeks on a mission trip. We were working with churches all over the city of Santiago, the second largest city in Dominican Republic, and we would do different things as we went to different churches. Sometimes it was evangelism, other times it was humanitarian uh, aid and things like that. But I remember being so excited as I prepared to go on this trip, right? I, I had this thought like, I'm going to go down there, and I am really going to help those Dominican people out. Like, they're going to be so glad that I came. And in the end, you know what? We did genuinely help those churches and those people. But you know what? My guess is there's probably not, like, a, a bunch of Dominicans sitting around right now being like, hey, do you remember that time when Nick Cady came to the Dominican Republic and he was like speaking bad Spanish, and uh, and he did he did that skit in the middle of the street. Man, that was that was life changing, wasn't it? And I guess is they probably don't even remember who I am or the fact that I came. Like probably zero people remember that I was there. But listen, there, that trip had a major impact on me and my life. I've often looked back at that trip as a turning point in my life because it was my first time out of the United States. And just a week after I returned from the Dominican Republic, I got on another plane uh, going this time to Hungary to a conference for Christians from Hungary and Ukraine. And that experience of getting to meet Christians who spoke different languages, who lived in a world that was very different than the world that I was accustomed to here in the U.S., it opened my eyes to a lot of things. You know, it opened my eyes to see what God was doing all over the world. It opened my eyes to understand the global body of Christ. And it left me with a conviction, and this was the conviction it left me with, that the church worldwide, right, Christianity worldwide, if we are truly a body, the body of Christ, Well, then the parts of the body which are stronger, don't we have an obligation towards those parts of the body that are weaker? Don't we have an obligation to help strengthen those parts uh, that are weak? We who have resources, shouldn't we be resourcing those parts who have less? So it was a big part of uh, why a few months later I 
got on a plane again, this time with just a backpack, and I moved to Hungary because I wanted to help support Christians and the work of God in that part of the world. But I didn't have any money, and I didn't honestly have any skills, right? Like, I didn't really have anything to offer. Uh, all I had was myself, and, I, you know, it was like, hey, if you need people to literally do anything, um, then I will help. And apparently they were that desperate that they were willing to take anybody, including me. And so I went. And so there I was in Hungary. You know, we were serving in the church. I was serving, uh, ministering to refugees and students at that time. And you know what? The same thing happened to me there in Hungary over the course of those years that happened to me on that first trip to the Dominican Republic. And that's this. I thought that me going there was all about me going to give and sacrifice and serve those people. And I did. That was part of it. But in the end, I ended up being more blessed than I could have ever imagined. See, that's what happens. That's very common. When you get outside of yourself and you begin to serve, oftentimes those are the times when you really grow. Those are the times when you really are blessed. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, the more we share of the heavenly bread, the more we all shall have. And what that means is that, you know, many people have this assumption that if you, if you want to be happy and fulfilled in life, then what you need to do is you need to turn inward. You need to focus on yourself. You need to focus on serving your needs and your wants and your desires. But what the Bible teaches and what Jesus says is, no. The true path, the way of true happiness and greatest fulfillment is by becoming more like Jesus. And you know what Jesus was like? He was a giver. He was a server. That's what he was all about. You know what Jesus said about himself? He said, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' mindset. That's how he lived his life. And you know what the Bible tells us about Jesus? Where did that mindset get him in his life, that mindset of giving and serving as his focus? Well, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, that this mindset of being a servant, here's what it did for Jesus. It led him to be the happiest person who ever lived. It says there in Hebrews 1.9 that he was anointed with, oil of, with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions, which is like a Hebrew way of saying he was the happiest guy on the block. Okay, So this lifestyle of giving and serving that Jesus lived, it didn't lead to him being dour and depressed, didn't lead to him being empty and depleted, just the opposite. It led to a full heart and a happy life. And so it's because God loves you that he encourages you to join him in this grace of giving, in the grace of giving. The title of today's message is Giving Grace. And what we're going to see in our passage is that giving is a grace which helps us become more like Jesus who gave himself for us. Giving is a grace which helps us become more like Jesus who gave himself for us. Now here in this chapter, we're going to see that this giving, uh, people were called to give in various ways. So we're going to talk about some people were called to give financially. People are also called to give of their time. Others in this chapter are called to give honor where honor is due. But it all ties back. All of these forms of giving tie back and are motivated by Jesus who gave himself for us. So again, 
Giving is a grace which helps us become more like Jesus who gave himself for us. Now let's take that sentence and let's break it down as we study this passage today. So the first part of the sentence is this. Giving is a grace. Here's what it says in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. This chapter begins with a phrase, now concerning. This phrase is used four times in this letter. It's used at the beginning of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 12, and now here in the beginning of chapter 16. And what this phrase indicates, every time you read this, it indicates that Paul is now responding to a question the Corinthian Christians had written to ask him about. You see, this letter, 1 Corinthians, it was written by Paul when he was in the city of Ephesus, which was on his third missionary journey. You read about that in Acts chapters 19 and 20. So that's where Paul was. We know that because in verse 8 of this chapter, chapter 16, Paul mentions that he was in Ephesus as he wrote this letter. Now, near the end of the letter, in verses 17 and 18, the end of this chapter, Paul mentions the names of three men and these men were the ones who came from Corinth to meet him there in Ephesus, and they brought with them in their hands this letter written by the Christians in Corinth addressed to the Apostle Paul in which they were asking Paul to give them instructions and advice about various things that were happening and going on in their church. So Paul says, okay, they apparently have asked him about this issue of giving, and so he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. What this is referring to is a special collection which Paul was planning to collect from all of the churches that he was in contact with. And the purpose of it was to provide financial assistance or financial aid for the poor and suffering Christians in Jerusalem. Now, this collection was a really big project that Paul worked on for several years, and it's talked about in many places throughout the New Testament. It was a big deal at this time, right? So it's talked about in the book of Acts. It's talked about in the letter to the Romans. It's talked about in 2 Corinthians. It's talked about in the letter to the Philippians. So this is talked about in a lot of places in the New Testament, this collection that Paul took up for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. And it seems that Paul had been sending out uh, letters to churches, I mean, messengers to them, kind of to tell them to prepare. Hey, we're taking up this collection. Here's uh, what it's for, etc. So the Corinthians had responded to Paul as part of this letter that they wrote. And they said, okay, Paul, help us understand what is the proper procedure for taking this special offering? And now Paul is going to answer that question here at the beginning of chapter 16. The reason Paul was taking up this special collection for the church in Jerusalem is because we know from Acts chapter 11 that there was a famine in this time in Jerusalem. A famine, right? And so the Jerusalem church, in addition to having this famine, this natural disaster, if you will, taking place in their area, the Jerusalem church also, we know from Acts chapter 6, had a ministry where they provided meals and other financial support for widows in their community. Many widows, we read about that. And, you know, widows would have been in a really needy and destitute place in that society. So they were caring for those in their, their community who had need in the, in the form of widows. So this financial aid from, for the church in Jerusalem that was being collected, it was going to help those who had been affected by the famine, and it was also to support the ministry and the outreach 
of that church in that city. But another reason why Paul wanted to send this financial gift to the Christians in Jerusalem in their time of need was because there had been, historically, some tension between the ethnically Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians up until this point. So Paul thought this would be a great gesture, right? If the non-Jewish Christians could gather some money and just bless these guys in their time of need, maybe that would be kind of an olive branch. It would be a, something that would have a unifying effect on the church. But this collection Paul was taking up for the Christians in Jerusalem, here's an interesting thing about this verse here, verse 1. The Greek word that's used for collection is not the normal word that's used for regular donations, like when we read in the Old Testament about how they collected the tithes and the offerings. Instead, this is a different word. It's the word logia. Now, logia, what it refers to is it, it's a special one-time extra collection, if you will. It was in addition to their regular giving, which they gave to support the ministry of their local churches, it wasn't compulsory. It wasn't a tax. It was an extra optional opportunity for them to give for a special project because there was a special need at that time. Now, we recently set up something familiar, uh, something similar to this. For those of you who receive our um, communications via email, etc., you might have seen that we just started a Ukraine relief fund this past weekend. Now, it's the same thing as what they were doing for the saints in Jerusalem. This is an extra optional opportunity to give to support our missionaries and other Christians in Ukraine who need help, either because they've been displaced or because they're staying to serve and help those who are in need, and they need funding in order to do so. Now, that again, that's the same heart that Paul had there in getting that special collection together for the church in Jerusalem. An extra optional donation in addition to their regular tithes and offerings that went to support the local church. Now, Paul's going to tell them, starting in verse 2, how this offering should be collected, how this should be done. He says in verse 2, on the first day of the week, or the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So he says, on the first day of every week. That tells us a lot, actually. The first principle that Paul gave them about giving is that their giving should be systematic, not haphazard. It should be systematic, not haphazard. And the fact that it was done on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, every time in the New Testament where we read about the Christian church gathering, without exception, we read that they gathered on the first day of the week, Sunday, doesn't mean they were opposed to gathering on the Jewish Sabbath. It just means that they gathered for celebration and for study on the first day of the week, Sunday, in the early church. And what that tells us is that if they were to do this on the first day of the week, that what Paul's telling them, the second principle about giving, not only should it be systematic, but it's an aspect of your worship. It's part of your worship. Sometimes we use that language here at Whitefields. We'll say, when you're ready for giving to be part of your worship. And that's definitely how we encourage people to think about it. And this is one of the reasons why. Giving was to be part of their worship. Now think about this. Worship always involves sacrifice. 
no matter who you are, no matter what you're worshiping, worship always involves sacrifice. At minimum, it involves the sacrifice of your time, but it will always involve sacrifice of your energy, your money, etc. Worship always involves sacrifice. No matter what you worship, right? People who don't go to church, if you want to know what they really worship, you can just follow the money trail. The money trail will reveal a lot about what they truly worship, no matter what we might say that we worship, right? Money is a representation of your time and your energy. That's what it is. Time and energy is represented by our money. So wherever we put our money, we're essentially investing our time and our energy. If you really want to know what you worship, just take a look at particularly, not just where you spend your money, but particularly where you sacrifice your money. Where are the areas where you make sacrifices with your money? Because if you give sacrificially to support the work of God and the furtherance of the gospel, one of the things that it does is it will actually proactively direct your heart towards those things. Let me give you an example. Uh, Pastor Mike and I, we like to go running. Maybe like to go running is a, is a weird way to put it. We, we go running, whether we enjoy it or not, right? We do go running uh, several times a week, uh, whether we like it or not. And during these runs, uh, we talk about all kinds of things. But just over a year ago, we both, kind of independent of each other, we both bought you know, some small amounts of cryptocurrency and, uh, and stocks, right? And so, you know, before on our runs, we had never, ever talked about the stock market. And then suddenly it became like the thing we talked about every time we ran. Market volatility, what's going on here? What's the price of your thing? How did that go up? You know, what are you going to invest in next? You know, it's funny. I never, ever spent any time looking at stock prices or caring about anything about the stock market. But as soon as I bought into it, suddenly I spent way too much time doing it. Like I was like a little bit obsessed and I found myself wasting hours a day looking at the internet and like, you know, because here's why. Suddenly now I'm bought in. Suddenly now I've got a stock in that, right? I've got ownership in something. And suddenly now I'm interested and, you know, it's guiding my attention by having that investment to the point where, again, I found myself maybe doing it too much. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in, on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but instead store for yourself treasures in heaven and then he said this in verse 21. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, wherever you put your treasure, your heart will naturally follow. You will naturally be inclined to think about those things. Your heart will be bound up with that thing. If you put all your treasures into yourself, guess where your heart and mind are going to be focused. But let's say you say, well, you know what? I'm going to uh, support a ministry. I'm going to fund a mission trip. I'm going to do something, right? Whatever you put that into, you, you know what? Suddenly you're going to be interested in how that went. How did it go? You know, you're invested in it. You want updates. You're going to be praying for its success because you're invested. You see, an easy way to proactively, intentionally direct your heart and your mind towards the right things is by being intentional about where you place your treasures, you know, what's really interesting, I read this thing recently, Barna Research Group 
over the course of the pandemic, they've been, you know, keeping data and analyzing that data and, and all of this. One of the things that they said recently is that over the course of the pandemic, the past two years, most churches in the United States declined by an average of 50%. So church attendance across the board is generally down 50%. But here's what's interesting. At the same time, giving has remained pretty steady, right? So it hasn't really gone down much. It's been about the same. Now, that's a little bit puzzling, isn't it? I mean, you would expect that if you lost 50% of the people that you'd also lose 50% of the donations at the same time, right? That it'd be proportionate to the number of people that you lost, but that wasn't what happened. So what's the reason? Is it because those 50% of people who stayed decided to give twice as much? No, it's actually not what they found. Here's what they found, and it was really interesting, that those people who were not in the habit of giving prior to the pandemic, they weren't serving in their church, they weren't giving financially, those people were much more likely, like seriously much more likely, to disconnect and disappear from the church altogether. And their conclusion as a result of the study was that this is actually something that giving and serving does to you, right? It has this effect on us that it causes us to be more invested. It keeps us engaged. It keeps us plugged in. In other words, as Jesus put it very well and concisely, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you can actually proactively and intentionally direct where your heart goes through your pocketbook, you see, Paul also directs them that their giving should be done on the first day of the week. You know why? Because throughout the Bible, we have this very important principle that we give God our first and our best, not our leftovers and our scraps, right? So we give God our first and our best, not our leftovers and our scraps. Proverbs 3 verse 9 puts it concisely. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your increase. I'll just tell you how this works for me so you can uh, know an example. You know, even though I'm the lead pastor of this church, the first thing that comes out of my paycheck, it's set up so it's just recurring. It happens without me thinking about it. But the first thing that comes out is, uh, you know, my income, it, the first expense is giving to this local church and the work of God through this local church. And I give a tithe, which is 10%. That's something that God instructed the people to do in the Old Testament to support the ministry of the temple. And though it's not a law that we must follow that we're under, we do believe that it's a good principle to follow. So that's what we do, 10%. And then with whatever's left over after that initial thing goes out, that's how we pay our bills and do all our things. But here's what happens. Sometimes, uh, because we give that first before we do anything else, that means that come the end of the month, or maybe even in the middle of the month, there are other things that we cannot afford to do. And we have to say, I guess we can't afford to do that because we don't have any money, right? In other words, it costs us something, and it shapes our lives. There are things that we cannot do because we do this. And that's kind of the point, guys. Right? That's kind of the point. That's what makes it a sacrifice. That's how it shapes your life. It wouldn't be a sacrifice if it didn't cause me to have to give up other things. But doing it first shapes the way that I live and what I do for the rest of the month. Right? If I took a different approach, if I said, I'm going to pay all my bills first and then do all the things that I want to do, First, and then, you know, if there's anything left over, I'll kind of push it God's way. 
it probably oftentimes wouldn't happen. But doing it first makes it a matter of priority, right? Rather than being haphazard, it's intentional. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to tell them, to be intentional about it on the front end, not just haphazard. Now, listen, I, I need to say this. The only reason I use myself as an example here is not to pat myself on the back, right? It's because I want you to know that this isn't just something that I tell other people to do, but I don't do myself. I want you to know this. This is something I do, and here's why I do it, because I actually believe in it. I believe that this is what not only the Bible teaches, but I believe it's good for me, right? I believe it's exactly what God wants for my good. You know, personally, I hate talking about money. If you've been in this church for any amount of time, I hope that you've noticed that we almost never talk about money here at the church. Um, but you know what's interesting? Jesus didn't avoid talking about money. He didn't shy away from it. And neither did the Apostle Paul. And it wasn't because they were trying to, you know, get rich off of people that they talked about money. Um, you know, both Paul and Jesus, they died poor. The reason why Jesus talked so much about money was because he understood what money means to our hearts and how it affects our souls. You could put it this way. Teaching us to give isn't God's way of raising money so much as it is God's way of raising kids. As our Father, God wants to raise us to be certain kinds of kids. And so he tells us uh, to give because of what giving does to us and for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks to the Corinthians about giving. And here's what he says to them. He says, since you excel in everything, right, you're doing awesome in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and love we've kindled for you. You're, doing, you're killing it in all these areas. See to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. He says, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And check out what he says in verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you. This benefits you. Did you catch what he said there? Paul is saying, I want you to excel at the grace of giving because Jesus gave himself for you, and therefore giving benefits you. It's good for you. It's not about raising money. It's about raising kids, right? This practice of giving is actually good for me. Why? Because it makes me more like Jesus. And that brings us to the second part of our sentence. Giving is a grace which helps us become more like Jesus. So the best thing that could ever happen to you is to become more like Jesus. If you look at Jesus, you'll notice that he is everything that you wish and desire that you could be. People wanted to be around him. He was the happiest person who ever lived. People were drawn to him, and he was perfectly satisfied, complete. Everything that we desire to be, he is. And in the book of Romans, chapter 8, we're told that God's ultimate vision and plan for your life, because he loves you, is that you would be more and more like Jesus. So the practice of giving, Paul tells us, is a grace and what does that mean? What does it mean, the grace of giving? Well, grace, the word grace means a gift. And God calls us to join him in this grace of giving because as Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10, it actually benefits you when you give. Now, when we give, um, you know what it does? It prevents selfishness from getting its claws into your heart. 
It prevents it from getting its claws into your heart. It giving weans us off of our addiction to ourselves and gets us focused on God and on others. Because you're saying, I want to love God and love people practically, not just in word, but in deed. And I want to use money rather than having it be the other way around, where I love money and I use God or I use other people. So Paul says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up that he may, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul wants them to decide this ahead of time. He says, I want it to be premeditated. I want you to think about it, pray about it, and decide what you're going to do before you come so that you won't be manipulated, so you won't feel like you were, you know, your arm was twisted and you were manipulated into doing this. Notice what Paul says then in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And finally, notice what he says in verse 2. Everyone should give as he may prosper. In other words, you should give proportionate to your income, and who should give? He says, everyone or each one of you. So giving is a spiritual discipline. It's a grace from God intended to shape us into certain kinds of people, people who act and think like Jesus. He says in verse 3, When I arrive, I will send uh, those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I like this. Uh, you know, Who's to say that Paul, he gets this big chunk of money, he isn't going to go buy himself like new iPhone and a Land Cruiser, right? Like who's to say he's not going to do that? But Paul says, look, I want accountability. You guys can take this money to Jerusalem yourselves. If you want me to be involved, I'll be involved, but I don't have to be. He wants accountability. He's welcoming it. He wants them to know there's no funny business going on with God's money. And, and I think that's important. There needs to be stewardship and accountability when it comes to dealing with God's things and God's money. In verse 5 through 7, Paul tells the Corinthians about his plans to visit them after he passes through Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and how he would really like to spend some dedicated time with them. But he says in verse 8, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase, right? A wide door. God's opened a door for me. And there are a lot of adversaries. Sometimes we tend to think that if God is opening the door, then he's going to remove all the obstacles. It'll just be a clear, easy path because God opened the door. But you know what? Sometimes that's not the case, like right here. Sometimes great God-given opportunities still involve serious obstacles and opposition. And sometimes rather than removing all the obstacles, God leaves them in place in order to strengthen you as you face them. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So Timothy, he mentions him here. Timothy was a young pastor whom Paul was mentoring. And it's interesting that Paul tells the Corinthians not to let anyone despise Timothy, because Paul also tells Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, also here in our Bibles, Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone despise you. So he says to the Corinthians, don't let anybody despise Timothy. Timothy, don't let anybody despise you. Apparently, people were despising Timothy. Why? Well, Paul says, because of your youth. People are like, who is this kid? They weren't treating him with respect. But Paul says, look, also, 
earn their, earn their respect. And here's how. By being an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So this grace of giving, here's what I want you to understand. This isn't only about giving financially. This idea of giving extends to every area of our lives. Giving of our time, giving of honor to other people. Giving is something that needs to permeate every sphere of our lives. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at, his will, not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has an opportunity. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Now that phrase, act like men, that's kind of a Greek uh, phrase that means to be brave, right? Remember, Paul's writing to a mixed audience here, but he's saying to them, be brave, stand firm. In other words, be unwavering, be resolute, be strong in what you believe. And yet, he says, let everything you do be done in love. That word love is the word agape, which is the word which describes the highest form of love, which is sacrificial, giving love. The kind of love that God has for us. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Giving is a grace which helps us become more like Jesus. Now in verses 15 through 17, Paul mentions these three men by name who brought the letter. They were the letter carriers, brought the letter to him. These men's names are uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Now they were the ones who brought the letter from Corinth to Paul there in Ephesus. And notice what Paul says in verse 18. He says, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Throughout the New Testament, we read about Christians from one place traveling to another place in order to encourage other believers, and as Paul says here, to refresh their spirits. So Pastor Mike and I, we were scheduled to fly out to Kiev tonight. We had tickets. We even bought this special COVID insurance that they made us buy to enter Ukraine. And uh, we were scheduled to fly out. We were going to fly out tonight, this afternoon, uh, via Munich to Kiev. And again, we had everything was set to go. We were heading over there to teach a conference for pastors and leaders in Ukraine, something we've done every year for many years. Um, but this, of course, our flights were canceled this week. Uh, Ukraine is under attack. Many of the people we were going to teach and encourage are fleeing their homes. Just this morning, I got a text. I texted one of my pastor friends who was going to be at this conference. I said, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm alive. I'm in a bomb shelter with my kids. That's what he said, right? He's are hiding in basements. They're hiding in subway stations. Others have fled the country. There's uh, almost 400,000 refugees in the surrounding countries. They're expecting that number to go well over a million. Right? The, the, as a church, we support several missionaries in Ukraine. Some of them are staying so they can serve the hundreds of thousands of displaced people there in the country. Others have left Ukraine. They've gone to Poland and Hungary. Uh, and so Pastor Mike and I, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be flying out to Budapest, Hungary tomorrow in order to do exactly what Paul is talking about here, to be with our missionaries and hopefully to refresh their spirits by being with them and encouraging them. 
And we're going to be taking some money with us and other gifts and supplies. We're also going to be looking into ways that our church can be involved in the future in serving with this humanitarian crisis, this refugee crisis, which is happening both inside and outside of the borders of Ukraine. We're going to be there for just over a week. I'm only going to miss one Sunday, but I would love it and appreciate it if you would pray for us on this trip, for God to lead us and guide us, and that truly we would do what Paul says here, that we would refresh the spirits of those we are going to see, many of whom are our missionaries we support. So giving is a grace. This brings us to our last part, which helps us become more like Jesus, who gave himself for us. Paul says in verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Don't get get weird and insist on kissing people. I've seen this. We're like, it's in the Bible. I'm going to do it. And all all the ladies are like, you creepy guy. It's always like a creepy guy who wants to do it. Listen, I'm going to go to Hungary I'm probably going to get kissed on the face by some gypsy men. That's just what they do over there, okay? It's just how it is. But over here, you can shake each other's hands. I'm, I'm more of a waver. I don't even like shaking hands. Right? Hey, there you are. I see you. Hi. Right? Okay. That's the idea. A hearty hello will be just fine. You guys don't need to go kissing each other. Unless you're married, then go for it, right? All right, verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Uh, Paul was this letter was written by a scribe as Paul was dictating. You know, maybe he's like a pacer. He just paces back and forth while he talks. These people always make me nervous. But here at the end, Paul says, you know what? Give me that pen. He grabs that pen and he writes it with his own hand, right? So if you're looking at the original copy of this letter, this part would have been written in a different script, a different size, different handwriting. Here at the letter, end of the letter, Paul writes this. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Oh Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. When Paul says in verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That word accursed is the Greek word anathema, which maybe you've heard before. Anathema. It means to be cut off. In Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Paul says that he would be willing to become anathema from Jesus, from God, if it meant that in exchange the Jewish people could be saved. He was willing to be cut off, separated from God forever, if only the Jewish nation could be saved. This word anathema was used to describe the highest form of discipline that existed among the ancient Jews in the synagogue. So if you were a Jewish person and you did something wrong, the first level of discipline was that you would be separated from the synagogue for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, you come back, And we can carry on. But the next level of discipline, if you persisted in those sinful actions, was for the synagogue, they would uh, kick you out for an undetermined amount of time. Like, hey, listen, you can come back once you've stopped doing that thing. But if a person insisted and continued in these actions, the final step of discipline in the Jewish synagogue and in the society was to be called anathema. And anathema meant that you were cut off from God. You were cut off from the Jewish people. You were no longer even considered a Jew. You know, friends, the truth of the matter is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not only have we done wrong things, but we have continued to do wrong things in some cases, even though we knew they were wrong. None of us have loved the Lord as he deserves or as we even know that we ought to. And therefore, the Bible teaches that all of us deserve to be anathema, cut off from God forever. 
But the good news of the gospel, the hope we have in Jesus, is that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, who lived a life of perfect obedience to God, he willingly sacrificed himself for you. Jesus became anathema for you on the cross. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, in the greatest act of grace, in the greatest act of sacrificial love, Jesus took all of your sins upon himself. He took the judgment that you deserved and he became anathema in your place, cut off from God so that you, who deserved to be anathema, could be brought near, forgiven, saved, and redeemed, reconciled to God so that you can spend eternity with God, not in outer darkness, but in the light of his glorious presence. And that, friends, is the hope, the promise, the good news of the gospel. And that hope can be yours today. That forgiveness, that grace can be yours if you put your trust in Jesus and embrace by faith what he did to save you. And it's by looking to him that you will grow continually in love for him. And then as you grow in love for him, God's plan for your life is that you would become more and more like him. And one of the ways that we do that is by practicing the grace of giving in every area of our lives. And I encourage you to do that this week in every sphere of your life, in finances, in honor, in time, and other areas as well. Giving is a grace that helps us become more like Jesus who gave himself for us. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.